0: Uh, If you will turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, which will be wrapping up chapter 1 this morning, but this has been a tremendous start. It's been a tremendously beneficial sermon series for me, so I really hope that it has been a beneficial sermon series for you so far. I have been uh, tremendously blessed by our time in Ephesians so far So this morning's text is one that is full of truths for growing in the life of faith. It's full of truths for growing in the life of faith. And we're going to kind of unpack that idea as we move along this morning. But the overarching challenge which this morning's text brings rests on two truths. true truths that we see revealed in Scripture. The first being that which we saw a couple of weeks ago, that those who are redeemed produce regenerate fruit. And that really comes to rest here this morning as we finish this opening section of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, that those who are redeemed produce regenerate fruit. In other words, if you are indeed in Christ, then your life will look undoubtedly different. Different than the world around you, different than it used to, it will look different. The second truth, which the challenge of this morning's text rests on, is that the Christian walk is one of sanctification. So you'll notice how that goes hand in hand with what I just said. So the Christian walk is one of sanctification. From the moment of salvation, we are in a constant process of being made new. And the reason these two truths are challenging and the reason why I say, I I phrase it like that, that they're challenging to us is because we live in a world in which would have us believe that true happiness is found within a world in which the overwhelming message has become to be true to yourself to find what makes you happy, to find what gives you peace. And all of it has, at its core, seeking all of those things from the desires of one's heart. Last week, we wrapped up this long sentence of praise, of acclamation that we have from verse 3 to 14. As we, we reminded ourselves all along, this is one long sentence there. We finished that sentence last week. This morning, we're going to wrap up all of chapter 1 of Ephesians. And this is just the beginning as we continue to remind ourselves that the first three chapters are soaked and in, indeed have as their focus the doctrine of Christ and his power to redeem and all that God has accomplished in Christ and all that he is accomplishing in our lives still. And the message of the gospel is that being is that being that being true to ourselves is what got us into the broken, sinful State that we find ourselves in this world. And the message of Ephesians so far, and what we're seeing is that Ephesians is leading us to have a higher view of God and his sovereignty so that we may have a better understanding of the work that he has accomplished and is accomplishing in and through us. So... I'll ask you once again to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, or what we'll be reading this morning. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. who fills all in all. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and how it points us to the implications of of what you have been at work doing from eternity past to how you are at work bringing us toward eternity future. And so help our frail human minds grasp these tremendous concepts this morning. as we seek to grasp how you have been at work, are at work, and will be at work for your glory in our lives and for your glory to be made known through our lives so that we as your church can unite around the goal of your glory and live according to it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So, before we jump right in to unpacking everything that we just read, because as you saw, this is, uh, begins another one big long run-on sentence here. So we begin with a big run-on sentence, and then we continue with the next sentence being a shorter run-on sentence But before we jump into unpacking that, I want to give us some more historical context, as I want to do as we move throughout this series, that I think will give us an even greater understanding of Paul's words to the church at Ephesus that we're reading this morning. So, Ephesus was a a popular city. It was full of life and culture. It was a, a popular port city for Trading, so it had many land, uh, many trade routes by land, and then because it was a port, then it could send out through the sea. It no longer sits on the sea because of uh, you know just the changing of, of of the region, and also because of some human intervention back, even way back then. Right, so a military—it was a military base for the Romans, which means it was full of retired and non-retired soldiers. It was a city steeped in culture. It had a large theater, which I have a picture of right here, which uh, I took on a trip to Greece one time. Don't know how well you can see it. The camera technology wasn't as great as it is now. Okay, Uh, but I thought it was pretty incredible at the time. Uh, So you'll see this theater right here is at Ephesus and it would have sat roughly 24,000 people and it's all marble stone that you see there. And this, you can read about this theater in Acts chapter 19 when Paul is in Ephesus and he casts out this demon that was causing this girl to have visions and that they were, these silversmiths were using to to continue to to, um, benefit their trade And then Paul causes a riot because of this. And we read in Acts 19, verse 29, I think, um, where they drag Paul and his followers into the theater. Well, this is the theater that they would have dragged him into to put him on trial, right? And so this theater also would have been the place where they would have seen many plays and different battles and just different things would have happened here. And this was a big center of the culture for this city. It had a, and so not only would they consume plays, but they would have public trials, as I just saw. It was a center for knowledge and wisdom and learning. As you can see, this next picture I have for you is the library, which was built for the Roman uh, governor council, consul. Uh, it was a cultural melting pot in the middle of a culture that was obsessed with knowledge. You can see this is uh, the marble road leading up to the library. And then this next picture is an up-close picture of this two-story library that was also at the center of Ephesian culture and life. Now, this library itself would have been constructed well after Paul's time there in Ephesus. But this speaks to how focused and, and obsessed Knowledge obsessed this culture was, as this library would have housed over 12,000 scrolls. It was in the middle of the city. And this is where they worshiped and it would grow and they would seek to have these debates and philosophical discussions. Now, what does all of this have to do with this? Well, as maybe you've seen as we moved along through these first three sessions, and as you'll definitely see this morning, Paul's focus is on seeking to transform the knowledge of the people from seeking a a knowledge of how we can, can have a knowledge of natural revelation and growing in our understanding of the world to filtering all of that knowledge through the one who is the creator of knowledge and the creator of all things and to filtering all of that through an understanding that in Christ is where we find the greatest knowledge That we can have. And so we start with verse 15 there. For this reason. And we're going to pause right there. Some of you might have giggled because we're pausing right at that first first column. For this reason. Well, immediately following Paul's incredibly rich exclamation of praise in verses 3 through 14, we begin this next section with this prepositional phrase. For this reason. So what this immediately indicates to us is that whatever comes after this phrase is rooted in what has been said before this phrase. You you tracking with me? So this, this phrase, for this reason, is rooting everything that he's about to say in what he's already said. But this particular phrase also, because you see that What comes right after that comma? Because. For this reason, because. So this prepositional phrase roots us in what he's already said. And he's giving even further rooting and instruction and foundation in what he's about to say. All right. So I just want us to see the importance of of the, the structuring of this sentence here. So. It, it, this immediately indicates whatever this phrase rooted in what he said before and is also founding it in what he's about to say. So it's specifically referencing back to, look at verses 13 through 14. We're going to read that real quick. So in him, this is what we concluded with last week. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So, We see our first point there on your outline this morning. Hopefully you have your outline handy or you're following along in your Ephesians journal. The regenerate work of salvation transforms us to be to the praise of his glory. Because we need to be transformed. We are not in that form of being to the praise of his glory in our natural state and pursuing our desires or our life. So we must be renewed. We must be redeemed. And that's the entire founding of what he's laying out in verses three through 14 is the glorious nature of God's grace in everything that he's accomplished in our redemption, in our salvation. So that he can bring us to a point where we are to the praise of his glory. And so Paul says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So this is what I meant by, about this phrase for this reason. Not only does it anchor itself in what has come before, but it also applies to what comes after. So everything that he stated in 3 through 14 in exclaiming the glorious work of God's grace in our lives to save us, and in doing so transform us to, the, to be to the praise of his glory He sees this fruit of grace, how? By hearing the testimony of the faith of the church. I have heard of your faith. And so in other words, he's saying, I've heard that God has accomplished all of this, that he's laid out. This blessing of God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And because God has accomplished this in your life, he has made you to the praise of this glory. And for this reason, because I've heard of how God great, has made his grace known to you and has transformed your life. Because God has done this. Well, this means that Paul is going to unpack Something else, These, the work of salvation transform us from being dead in our sinful praise of our own false glory to being to the praise of God's glory. And this bears good fruit of praise for God's glory. That those who know Christ may hear and see and experience the genuineness of our faith and that those who don't know Christ may taste and see the Lord is good through our testimony. So Paul is saying, because I have heard that God has accomplished all of this in your life and that you are living according to it, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints and how that is compelling you to love one another. So not only do we recognize one another by our fruits, but the world recognizes us by our fruit because of how contrasting our fruit is to theirs. This is what Jesus got to When he said in John 13 35, they will know you are mine by your fruit. If you'll turn real quick to John 13, or it'll be on the screen for you. But what I want us to see is the importance of this statement that Paul is making, that I have heard of your faith. Because I have heard of your faith. And so Jesus said to his disciples, that they will know that you were with me. They will know that you were impacted by me. They will know that you are different by how you live that out. John 13, starting in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also Glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. So I'm only with you for a short amount of time. You will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. But, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this is coming off the back of Jesus foretelling that one of them would betray him. This is coming, that is coming right off the back of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. So yet another example of servant leadership and love. And so now he's telling them and he's getting ready to make it plain to them that the Son of Man is getting ready to be glorified according to God's plan. As God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. But he's saying that where I'm getting ready to go, you cannot come with me. But I leave you behind. And this is how people will know is if you live out this new commandment that I'm giving to you, that you love one another. This is how people will know that you are mine, that you have spent time with me, that you are my disciples, is that it will be lived out in actuality and in reality in how you live and treat those around you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And So Paul here back to Ephesians, is saying to the church at Ephesus, behold the glorious grace of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I've heard of how you are living this out. But as you can see, this sentence structure so as to say that Paul's realization of this is compelling him to do something. So we haven't, we, I mean, we still have plenty of sentence to go. So we pick back up in verse 16. So for this reason, so because of all that God has accomplished for us in Christ and has brought us in Him and chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, and He has sealed us with His Holy Spirit, and because I've heard of your faith and how you're living this out and living in the reality of what God has accomplished for us in Christ and your love toward all the saints, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So, Paul hears of their faith and how it's prompting them to love all the saints, and his response and to to live out in faith, and his response is to praise God for what he's accomplished in this church. Why? Because when he hears of their faith, he's reminded of everything that he has just exclaimed of God's glorious grace and how it is on display in the lives of those whom whom he has discipled, who he has brought along, who he has raised up in the faith. And in being reminded of God's glorious grace, he's also reminded of how the grace of God has changed his life. You see, church, what I want us to take away from these first few lines here of this morning's text is the the point that testimonies of God's saving grace provoke prayers of praise. Testimonies of God's saving grace provoke prayers of praise in our lives. Paul uses this phrase elsewhere of of not ceasing to give thanks for you, not ceasing in my prayers for you. He uses this phrase elsewhere, but it's not some half-hearted Platitude that he's providing for the church. This is not to to puff them up. It's not not the equivalent of our modern day thoughts and prayers in the comment section on Facebook. No, he tells the church that he does not cease to thank God for them, meaning not just their existence, right? He's not just thanking God for their existence, although he is, but also he's thanking God. For what he has accomplished in planting them in Christ. For what he is accomplishing in their midst. Of how he is changing them, making them new. But when he says this phrase, remembering you in my prayers. So first he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. So I don't cease to, to celebrate what God is doing among you. And thank God for all that he is accomplishing and will accomplish in and through you. But also, then he says, remembering you in my prayers. So he tells them that he does not cease to thank God for his work in their lives. And then he begins to tell them exactly how he is also praying that God would continue to work in their lives. You see, as we hear the testimony of God's grace among our church family, from our fellow believers, that should evoke just this un- un controllable urge to praise God and thank God for what he is doing in the life of a brother or a sister or what he is doing in the midst of our church family. And then that should continue to compel us and urge us to push further into the things that God has in store for us as a church family. And so Paul tells them exactly what he is praying for for them as he gets ready to do. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So before we dive into what Paul is praying for them, let me challenge us to share with one another not only our requests for prayer, because that's, that's what we're used to doing. We, we share what we want or we need prayed for on our behalf, right? But I want us to challenge each other to share to share not just our request for prayer, but I want to challenge us to share with one another what we're praying for each other on behalf of one another. Because what a measure of God's grace to have a brother or a sister or a husband or a wife tell us exactly what they are petitioning God for on our behalf to what they're seeing happen in our lives, what they're not seeing happen in our lives, because that's a two-sided coin, that it can be encouraging, but it can also be convicting and challenging. And we need both. And so I want to challenge us to not always be in the, the condition or the position where we are giving people our prayer requests, but where we are also sharing with brothers and sisters what we are praying for them. And so this is what Paul does. He tells the church what he's praying for them. And we pick back up in verse 17. So I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. And we're going to pause right there before we finish this sentence. So I want us to pay attention here real quick to Paul's titles for God that he's using throughout this first section here, this first chapter. So we started off in the introduction with blessing of peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he said. Bless be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And then we have the exclamation of praise that we just finished last week with this reciprocating blessing to God. You see that verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Okay, then this leads into Paul's in-depth explanation of all that God has providentially planned and provided and purposed for us in Christ. Which, as we ultimately see, is that we are transformed to the praise of his glory. That's you know, where we wrapped up in verse 14. So now he uses a different title for God or a different title. Arrangement for the title of God, if you will. So he says, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So now that he has broken down how God has brought us and is bringing us to the praise, to be to the praise of his glory, he now uses this title for God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom we are in and the one whom God has accomplished all of this in, the Father of glory. And the sooner we realize, church, here's, here's where I want us to see the importance of realizing this title and realizing the transition there is the sooner that we realize that God's glory is the goal and purpose of all things, the sooner we begin to see and understand how God is at work in this world at large and we begin to better understand how God is at work in our lives. We should filter everything through the lens of this biblical worldview, that the goal of all things is God's glory. Should I do this or that? Go here or there? Talk to him or her? How do I approach this or that? All of this should be filtered through the lens of how can I bring God glory? Or how is God glorifying himself in this? And how can I join him in obedience to that work? So we continue reading. So, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So this brings us to our next point our outline this morning. And that is that wisdom and revelation are precious gifts of grace from The Father of glory. So, as God is at work in our lives and has been at work from the foundation of the world to reveal himself in Christ and bring us to be to the praise of his glory, he is constantly gifting us through his grace, wisdom, and revelation that we may better understand him, that we may better know him. Because better understanding God and better knowing God through his word bring us to a position where we can give God greater glory in our lives. Brings us to further repentance. Brings us to a position of greater humility. Brings us to a position of loving our brother and our sister well. Because as we grow to better understand God through the wisdom and revelation that he gives us through his grace, we begin to better understand how he is at work around us. And this is what Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. From where does God's spirit give us wisdom? Where has God given us the revelation of knowledge of him? His word. So Paul's prayer here is that the Father of glory, who has brought us to the praise of his glory, may give us a spirit. Now, that that word spirit there doesn't mean that there are different spirits that God gives us or moves in and about us. This is simply meaning. That he would give us the the distinction of wisdom. That we would have among ourselves a countenance of wisdom. That we would have among ourselves a desire for wisdom. And so this isn't to say that there are different spirits, literally. But this is a, a figurative use of the word spirit here. So that he may give you a spirit, a countenance of wisdom. And of revelation in the knowledge of him. And so as God does this, as he brings us to the praise of his glory, as he accomplishes verses 3 through 14 in our lives, in our salvation, in our redemption, then we continue to grow from that. And that's what Paul, he said, I've seen how God is at work and I'm hearing how God is at work in you through your salvation. And I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will continue to give you A spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. As we pick back up, we continue reading verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. There's an important distinction that we need to make here between Greek culture and our modern Western culture. Because when we see and when we hear or use the word heart in a figurative sense. We're more often referring to what? We're referring to our emotions, or our feelings, or our passions. That's how we use the figurative sense of the word heart, right? But in the Greek and the Mediterranean mindset, the figurative use of the word heart is more often in reference to one—the center of one's mind, the center of knowledge the ability to grasp or to have wisdom. So going back to understanding that Ephesus was a center for knowledge and learning and of of great culture and plays and and this theater. See here, Paul is saying that he is praying that the, the Father of glory will give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of their hearts enlightened so that they may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So when we consider this context, when we, the, having the eyes of our heart enlightened is the result of God graciously granting us a disposition of wisdom and of revealing knowledge through his word. And why is it important to understand? Because some of our emotions and passions are good gifts from God. Some of, our, some of our emotions and passions, many of them, are distortions of our sinful flesh. And so how do we discern between the two? How do we know which is God-given passion to be used in service to his kingdom and which is the desire of the flesh that we are seeking to use to glorify ourselves? Well, we need understanding. We need to be enlightened by God's all-sufficient Word. Our passions can be an incredibly powerful tool used in service to God's kingdom and in our spiritual walk. But they must be haltered and bridled. They must be filtered through and molded by the truths of God's Word. And so Paul is praying for this church, a church that is surrounded by a desire for knowledge, that they themselves live in this culture and have these passions, that the Father of all glory would give them a spirit of all wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, and that the eyes of their heart, their center of knowledge, would be opened and enlightened to what? Well, we continue reading in verse 18 there. I, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And this brings us to our next point this morning. That enlightened Hearts hearts that have had their eyes opened, who see things through the filter of God's glory. Hearts who have the true wisdom and knowledge of God's word clearly see the hope of our calling. Enlightened hearts can clearly see the hope of our calling. Because the Christian calling is one of perpetual hope. Because our faith in Christ, there is nothing in this world that can happen and we not have hope. So, in those moments when our hope feels weak, in those moments when we fear our faith may fail, He will hold us fast. And we must pray that God would bind our wandering hearts and that He would give us, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that he would give us the ability to know and to grasp and to, to, to realize the tangible hope to which he has called us in Christ. Because if he's accomplished verses 3 through 14, which he set out from the foundations of the world to do, then what have we to fear? Then where and when can we not have hope in him? and Paul's prayer for the churches at, at Ephesus is that they would have a knowledge of this hope, a firm grasp and understanding of the hope that we have in Christ. That as he has transformed us to be to the praise of his glory, he has given us all possible hope in him. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Keep your finger there. And Ephesians, we're coming right back to it. But 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is encouraging this dispersed region of churches that are on the forefront, on the tip of the spear of making God's name known, of living out faith in Christ amongst pagan cultures. He encourages these churches with these words from 1 Peter chapter 2 as he's laid out all that God accomplished in Christ and how Christ was the fulfillment of the priesthood, he says this in verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So where does Peter root the hope of these people who are on the forefront of the faith, of living out faith in the midst of pagan cultures and and of persecution and hardship? He roots their hope in what God has accomplished in Christ. And that the the true better Adam went through the curtain, behind the curtain, in the form of, excuse me, in the line of the priesthood. Our true high priest went into the holy place and is representing us in the most holy place now. And that that is where our hope is. And this is what Paul is doing here in Ephesians. For this reason because i have heard of your faith and your love toward all the saints i do not cease to pray for you that you would have the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and that's the next point there that you see that subpoint under enlightened hearts enlightened hearts can clearly see the hope of our calling and enlightened hearts can grasp the abundant riches of our inheritance. That's what Peter is proclaiming to them, that our inheritance in Christ is that we are now a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, we who were once Holy, unholy, have been made holy, and not just been made holy, but we've been placed in the position of a priesthood, a people for his own possession, all through what Christ has accomplished. And Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus is that through their eye, the eyes of their hearts being enlightened and open to a greater understanding, or greater knowledge, that they would know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches. Of his glorious inheritance in the saints. But we keep reading in Paul's prayer. Verse 19. And this is my favorite. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now, our, our next sub point there is enlightened hearts can measurable measure the immeasurable greatness of his power did you catch kind of the the conflict behind what paul is praying for the church here because our our minds need measurements it's how we understand and perceive and interact with the world around us is being able to quantify things and and understand how we relate to those quantities right This is the part of of math class when you said, when am I ever going to use this? I'm married to a math teacher. She's heard that more times than she can count. But this is how we understand our world, is math. I know you don't want to hear it, but it's true. And Paul says here that his prayer for the church, having the eyes of their heart enlightened through through the spirit of wisdom and the revelation of knowledge of him That they would be able to know what is the immeasurable. So what extends beyond our capabilities of measure. Think about that. That they would be able to grasp that. That they would be able to grasp and measure what is immeasurable. And what is it that he wants them to grasp? The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul's prayer is that with hearts that have been enlightened by the truth of God's word, eyes that have been given sight through the lens of the cross, that we would know and grasp the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Because where does he root this power? Where does he say this power was displayed? Well, continue reading verse 19 according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus and and my prayer for us is that as we seek to live out our lives in Christ, That we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened through the revelation of knowledge of him through his word. So that we could know and grasp and understand that we would be, be able to have a small understanding of the immeasurable power. The greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And where did he work out that might? Where did he show This immeasurable power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Why do we make such a big deal about Easter? Why do we celebrate Holy Week? Because of the immeasurable power that was displayed there and how that immeasurable power is working in us still of how it is bringing about sanctification in those of us who have been redeemed and are being redeemed until we are ultimately to the praise of his glory on the last day. You see, the empty cross and grave provide perpetual hope for those in Christ. When we look to an empty cross, we know that there is also an empty cross grave, and it was the power of God and the plan of God. It was the plan of God to crush him, and it was the power of God to raise him from the dead, and it is that same plan and power that is at work in those who believe. And because of this, for this reason, this is what Paul prays. Continue reading there in verse 21. He seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So that Roman governor, that temple to Artemis, that, that library full of great knowledge. Yeah, I've got a greater knowledge for you here. I've got one who is far above every name that can be named. Not just the names inscribed on those great monuments, but your name as well. And he has seated him there for us, where he is interceding on our behalf. This is the power at work in those who believe. This is the power at work. This was God's plan. we continue reading, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things. To who? To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this right here is kind of a a transition into deeper discussion of of these things Um, this doctrine and theology that Paul has so beautifully fleshed out here in these first two sentences. (laughs) he, He uses two sentences to sum up the first part of his letter, right? But he uses these two sentences to show the tremendous high view of God's sovereignty and how he's accomplished all this in Christ so that we may be to the praise of his glory. And then he says, and this is my prayer. That you realize that it doesn't stop there. But that he is still working in you. As Christ is seated in the heavenly places. And we are represented there in him. As remember, in him is that main theme through verses 3 through 14. And then he says, for this reason. So because of all that God has accomplished in that. He has seated him far above our rule and authority, anything that is on this earth, and he has put all things under his feet, leading us to our final point here, that Christ is our sole authority and all our allegiance is with him. All of our allegiance. And so as we are tempted to throw our hands at the behest of or the power of a political party or a Caesar, Paul is saying in him for this reason. My prayer is that you would realize that he has put all things in subjection to Christ. He has put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things so that his church, which is his body, the fullness of him would represent him in fullness in this broken world. And so as his church, our soul, he is our sole authority and all our allegiance is with him. So that in light of all that Christ has accomplished in our salvation and in uniting us as his church and in light of his exalting rule and authority and power, we realize that there is no other name which we bow to or submit ourselves to. And this is Paul's prayer for his church. This is Paul's prayer that they would be able to grasp the power of God that is working in them now, that they would be able to understand God's plan from the foundation of the world, and that they would be able to live in subjection to Christ's authority and Christ's authority alone. And may we seek to do the same. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, that it is living and active. And I pray that it would indeed challenge us this morning to have a higher view of you and of what you have accomplished for us in Christ and a better understanding of how you are working out your glory all around us. And so help us to be a church that represents the fullness of who you are in this dark and dying world that is broken by sin. May we be a church that shares, just as Paul did here, in what we are praying for one another so that we would challenge and encourage and and discipline one another well. so that we would submit to you and you alone. For all our allegiance is with you. God, as we sing one more song, as we respond to your word, help us to respond in repentance, help us to respond in faith, help us to respond in obedience.